I must confess that I had always dismissed the countless stories about the deep web and dark web as nothing more than sensationalized tales, mere urban legends meant to send shivers down one's spine. However, a close friend of mine, whom I trusted implicitly, adamantly swore that she had ventured into this shadowy realm and had witnessed unspeakable horrors, some of which she would divulge, while others remained locked in the recesses of her mind, forever haunting her. Despite her solemn assertions, I initially brushed her accounts aside, convincing myself that she was fabricating these sinister tales out of a twisted desire for attention. But curiosity gnawed at me, persistent and unrelenting. I couldn't simply let it go. I yearned to discover the truth behind her stories, to ascertain whether this place truly existed. And so, I found myself descending into the depths of the internet, embarking on a journey that would forever alter my perception of reality. Following the well-trodden path of inquisitive individuals, I ventured into the labyrinthine corridors of the deep web. I had been forewarned about the treacherous nature of the links that lay in wait, luring unsuspecting souls into a sinister web of depravity. My initial clicks led me to sordid rendezvous requests, illegal drug deals, and other nefarious transactions further confirming my skepticism. The deep web appeared to be nothing more than a digital marketplace for shadowy dealings, devoid of the sinister mystique that had been ascribed to it. However, I persisted in my quest for something remotely intriguing, something that would vindicate my friend's unsettling claims. And then, like a beacon in the darkness, I stumbled upon a link. The Night Watch. Intrigued, I clicked on it, envisioning perhaps a platform where an enigmatic figure would recount eerie tales or traverse desolate towns in the dead of night. Little did I know what awaited me. The moment I entered the night watch, I was greeted by a stark, black page. Three video screens dominated the space, arranged side by side. Each screen showcased a different family or individual. In the first video, a family of four was depicted, with parents and two young girls. The second featured a pregnant couple, their joy and anticipation palpable. The third video depicted a solitary woman and her faithful black lab, distinguished by a white streak over its left eye. Before I could scrutinize these vignettes further, a male voice emanated from the shadows. It was slightly distorted, rendering the speaker's true timbre enigmatic. Nevertheless, I strained to hear his words as he welcomed me with a chilling greeting. Good evening. Tonight, the night watchmen have brought you three unique households. They live disparate lives, harbor distinct beliefs, and envision disparate futures. He paused, clearing his throat with an eerie undertone. Watch each video, and then choose one. I was perplexed by the task at hand, struggling to comprehend its purpose. Yet, an inexplicable fascination overcame me, compelling me to continue. I hesitantly selected the first video, revealing fragments of the family's life, moments of familial togetherness, domestic activities, and ultimately, the parents retiring to their bedroom. The video abruptly cut off, leaving me feeling like an intruder into their intimate moments. A disconcerting voyeuristic sensation began to gnaw at my conscience. Reluctantly, I clicked on the second video, immersing myself in the lives of the expectant couple. 
I observed their shared excitement and love, their hopeful preparations for the impending addition to their family. This glimpse into their happiness managed to elicit a smile, albeit one tainted by the knowledge of my intrusion into their personal lives. Resigned to follow through, I moved on to the final video. It unveiled a single woman's solitary existence, marred by disarray and loneliness. Dishes piled up, laundry scattered, and trash overflowed. Her isolation weighed heavily upon me as I watched her desperate attempts to fill the void with television, ice cream, and an incessant obsession with her phone. I squirmed uncomfortably as the video took an explicit turn, capturing moments I had no business witnessing. Thankfully, the video ended, and I found myself waiting for the next stage of this surreal experience. The videos reverted to their initial stills, and the voice resurfaced. Now that you have seen, which will you choose? It queried, leaving me in silence, praying that someone else might be sharing in this macabre ordeal. But time passed without a response. The videos vanished, replaced by three new screens. This time the content was harrowing. Three towering figures, unmistakably men by their imposing presence, appeared clad in identical attire. Black shirts, pants, boots, and long trench coats. Wide-brimmed black hats obscured their features, lending an air of malevolence to their silhouettes. Have you decided? The voice inquired, its tone unsettlingly calm. Death comes on swift wings for our ill-fated friends. You must choose one. That's how the game goes. The implications of this grotesque game were thrust upon me, and I was horrified. Was I truly tasked with choosing who lived and who perished? The absurdity of it all made me consider closing the page. But before I could act, the voice interjected. Before you close us down, you should know that if you do not choose, your family will be next. The words reverberated through me, jolting me from my stupor. I dismissed it as a mere scare tactic, but then, to my horror, the voice addressed me directly. Anna, dear sweet Anna, I know it's a difficult choice, but it must be made. Please, if you will, direct the night watchmen to their chore. My heart pounded in my chest as I gazed at the screens, my eyes darting between the unfortunate families. The weight of responsibility bore down on me. The family with children was out of the question. The expectant couple's dreams hung in the balance. And then, my gaze fell upon the lonely woman with her faithful dog, the least to lose. With a heavy heart, I made my choice, clicking on her video. Very well, so shall it be, the voice responded, its serenity restored. The night watchman, a choice has been made. You may attend to your work. The videos returned to the previous scenes, and a sense of foreboding washed over me. Maybe this was all an elaborate prank by a group of hackers, I reasoned aloud, attempting to quell my rising fear. But then, the voice spoke again, uttering my name, and my heart seized with terror. Anna, dear sweet Anna, it intoned, sending shivers down my spine. I know it's a difficult choice, but it must be made. Please, if you will, direct the night watchman to their chore. The videos shifted, revealing the night watchman once more. Two of them approached their designated households, while the third retreated into the darkness, disappearing from view. Confusion washed over me. I had chosen the lonely woman, yet her watchman was walking away, vanishing into the night, leaving me bewildered and anxious. As the videos played out, 
two watchmen entered their respective homes. One stood menacingly at the foot of a sleeping couple's bed, brandishing a gleaming machete. He swung it wildly, and the room erupted in screams of terror. I felt a lump rise in my throat, bile threatening to surge forth. I averted my gaze to the other video, where the remaining watchmen loomed in the children's room, positioned amidst the pink bunk beds. My scream merged with the cacophony as he raised his machete, and in that moment I yanked the computer plug from the wall, severing the gruesome spectacle. My mind reeled in horror, unable to comprehend the unfathomable act I had just borne witness to. What had I done? My mouth was dry, my head spun with dizziness, and my heart threatened to burst from my chest. Hours passed, and I was left to grapple with the torment of my actions. Eventually, I dared to approach my computer, praying that the nightmarish ordeal had been erased from existence. I found nothing amiss, as if the twisted reality I had stumbled into had never existed. Days later, while checking my email, a sense of dread washed over me as I discovered a message from an entity I never wished to hear from, the Night Watchman. With trepidation, I opened the email, inexplicably compelled to confront the sinister enigma that had infiltrated my life. The email contained only a few haunting words against a stark white background. Jenna thanks you for excluding her from a Night Watchman's fate. We thank you for your choices too, and we truly enjoyed our encounter with you. Come play again anytime. Attached was an image of the lonely woman, still engrossed in her phone, walking her dog in the park. My soul shuddered with revulsion. I vowed never to venture into the dark abyss of the deep web again, forever haunted by the choices I had been forced to make and the chilling encounter that had unraveled before me. I've always loved Halloween, ever since I was a kid. I would eagerly anticipate it each year, counting down the days until I could dress up, carve pumpkins, and go trick-or-treating with my friends. Halloween was that one magical night when anything could happen, and I reveled in the thrill it brought. So when I stumbled upon an advertisement for seasonal workers at a local theme park hosting a Halloween event, I jumped at the opportunity. It seemed like the perfect way to earn some extra money while having fun. The ad mentioned they were looking for actors, makeup artists, costume designers, and various staff to create a spine-tingling atmosphere for the park's guests. Naturally, I applied for the actor position, hoping to scare the daylights out of people with my acting skills. A few days later, I received a call from the theme park inviting me to audition. The audition was held at the theme park itself, in a dimly lit backstage area. There were about a dozen other people, all dressed in various costumes and makeup, waiting nervously. I watched as they performed their scenes, some of them impressively good, which made me doubt my own chances, while others left much to be desired. When my turn finally came, I walked up to the stage where a man with a clipboard introduced himself as the director of the Halloween event. He asked for my name, and I replied, I'm Alex. He smiled and inquired, Nice to meet you, Alex. What scene will you be performing today? I confidently replied, A scene from The Shining. He nodded and said, Ah, a classic. Let's see what you've got. With a deep breath, I began to act out the scene. I must admit it felt a bit awkward. But to my surprise, the director seemed pleased with my performance. 
I couldn't believe it. I got hired as an actor for the Halloween event. After thanking him profusely and signing some paperwork, he handed me my schedule. I was going to play one of the killers in the haunted house called the Slaughterhouse, one of the park's most popular attractions. The Slaughterhouse was located at the far end of the theme park, near the woods. It was designed to resemble an old, abandoned factory where people were tortured and killed by sadistic killers wearing animal masks. Guests would navigate through dark corridors and rooms filled with gruesome props and effects, including severed limbs, hanging bodies, chainsaws, and plenty of terrifying screams. My role was to hide in one of the rooms, waiting to jump out at unsuspecting guests with my meat cleaver, aiming to send them fleeing in terror. The first night of work was exhilarating. I arrived an hour early, changed into my costume, and applied my makeup. I looked quite menacing in a blood-stained apron, a butcher's hat, and a fake meat cleaver. The thrill of scaring people was unlike anything else, and I relished every moment of it. Seeing the guests' terrified reactions as I emerged from the shadows was a pure delight. Week after week, I continued working at the slaughterhouse, every Friday and Saturday night from 7 p.m. to midnight. Each night was a unique experience, with different reactions from the guests. It was a job where boredom simply did not exist, and I began to think that I might have found my true calling. The climax of my time at the park was Halloween night, the grand finale of the Halloween event. The park was packed with enthusiastic guests, eager to celebrate the holiday in style. Decorations were more elaborate, the music was louder, and the staff was more energetic than ever. As I arrived at my locker an hour early as usual, I found a note from the director, along with a new costume and makeup kit. The note congratulated me for my hard work and dedication, and informed me that I'd been given a special role for the night. I was to play the leader of the killers, wearing a pig mask. Excitement surged through me as I donned the new costume and applied the makeup, transforming into a terrifying figure. In the slaughterhouse, my fellow actors and I gathered, all of us having received similar notes from the director about our special roles for the night. The anticipation was palpable as we waited for the event to begin. Little did we know that this Halloween night would turn into something far more chilling than we could have ever imagined. The night started off according to plan, with us terrifying guests as usual. But as the hours passed, something unexpected happened. An announcement came over the loudspeakers, but it was not the director's voice. It sounded strange, ominous. The announcement called for a real slaughter, a grand finale for the night. The lights inside the slaughterhouse suddenly went out, plunging us into complete darkness. Panic began to creep in as we fumbled in the dark, trying to make sense of the situation. After a long minute of silence, screams pierced the air, but they were different from the usual terrified screams. These were filled with genuine agony and terror. My heart pounded in my chest as I realized something was terribly wrong. A few of us rushed to investigate the source of the screams and stumbled upon a horrifying sight. Two individuals, dressed like us, were chasing guests with knives, inflicting real harm. In the dim light, I saw a body lying on the floor, surrounded by a pool of blood. Chaos erupted as guests fled in all directions, some stumbling and falling in the stampede. My co-workers and I tried to help, but we were overwhelmed and bewildered. 
I attempted to contact the director and the lighting crew, but there was no response. Amid the pandemonium, the announcement over the loudspeakers took an even darker turn. It was no longer just a twisted prank. It had become a real nightmare. The lights never came back on, and the screams and chaos continued. It was as though we were trapped in a real-life horror movie. Finally, when it was nearly midnight, the park's security and police arrived, swiftly containing the scene. The assailants were apprehended, but the damage had been done. The director was found unresponsive in his office, and the park immediately shut down the event, offering apologies and refunds to the traumatized guests. My co-workers and I provided statements to the authorities, trying to piece together the terrifying ordeal. It turned out that a former employee and his friends, for reasons unknown, had infiltrated the event, exploiting the chaos to carry out their twisted plan. What was meant to be a joyous Halloween celebration had turned into a nightmarish tragedy. In the aftermath, I was left shaken to my core, my love for Halloween forever tainted by the horrifying events of that night. The park never fully recovered, and I doubt I will ever be the same after experiencing the thin line between the thrill of fear and the true terror of reality. When I was 13 years old, I had an experience that, even now at the age of 26, still sends shivers down my spine. It was a Saturday night during the summertime, around 9 or 10 p.m., my family and I lived in a modest apartment on the first floor of a ten-floor building. Our apartment was situated right at the entrance, making it impossible to escape the sounds of anyone passing by. Little did I know that this fact would play a crucial role in the terrifying events that unfolded that night. At that time, I was deeply engrossed in a video game called Perfect World International on my PC. My beloved dog, Benny, was my only companion at home that evening. My parents, on the other hand, decided to go for a walk around the block, taking Benny with them. They asked if I wanted to join, but I declined, wanting to continue playing the game. They assured me it wouldn't take more than 30 minutes, so I agreed to stay home alone. As my parents got ready to leave, I logged into the game and checked my guild and global chat to see if anyone was online. Strangely, no one was online that night, which was quite unusual. Feeling a bit lonely and restless, I decided to change my mind and join my parents on their walk. I quickly got dressed, put Benny on his leash, and left our apartment. The apartment building had a foreboding aura, especially at night. Being on the ground floor meant we could hear every sound from outside, which often sent chills down my spine. But I pushed those thoughts aside as I joined my parents. We set off on our walk, enjoying the warm summer evening. However, after about 15 minutes, the atmosphere shifted dramatically. The gentle summer breeze suddenly turned into an ominous, foreboding wind, signaling an incoming storm. My mother made the call to return home, and Benny had already completed his business. We approached our building, a place that had always given me an eerie feeling. It was particularly dark on the side facing the block's garden, because there was no streetlight nearby. My father took the lead in unlocking the door, but as he attempted to unlock the final metal bar that secured it from the inside, his expression turned deadly serious. He paused and turned to my mother and me, his face etched with concern. 
In a hushed voice, he instructed us to call the police and alert the neighbors. Panic welled up within me as my mother rushed to the second apartment, where our neighbor, Ted, emerged, asking what was wrong. My dad whispered to Ted, obscuring the peephole of the door. Someone's in our house. They're holding the door. Please stay here with my family. I'll try to open it, but I'll be back. With that, my father sprinted alone into the darkness, shouting angrily, Hey, you, come back. Who the hell do you think you are? I'm calling the police. I followed my dad, not too closely, but enough to hear if he encountered trouble. After all, he was my father, and I couldn't help but worry. As I stepped outside, the darkness enveloped me, intensified by the absence of any streetlights near our apartment. My heart raced as I heard my father's distant shouts, Come back! And, I'm calling the police! My anxiety continued to grow, and I couldn't help but imagine the worst scenarios unfolding. In the midst of my fear, Ted managed to open the door, and we hurriedly entered our apartment. But what awaited us inside was beyond horrifying. In just fifteen minutes, our once serene home had been transformed into a chaotic nightmare. Shelves had been pulled out, and our clothes were strewn all over the house. Benny's dry food covered the floor, a clear sign that the intruders had stumbled upon his bowls, likely unaware we had a dog. What disturbed me the most was the calculated precision of the break-in. They had organized our belongings in the living room, meticulously selecting what they wanted to take with them. Laptops, one of our TVs, my father's prized coin collection, phones, chargers, wallets, and even my father's camera, which he needed for a wedding assignment that week all packed and ready to be stolen. But they hadn't had enough time to grab everything, so they settled for some of my mother's jewelry and pocket money. My heart sank as I rushed to my room, fearing the worst for my piggy bank. I had diligently saved money from my meager chores, and while it wasn't much, it represented my hard work and savings at the time. As I entered my room, a chilling sight met my eyes. The metal bars covering my window had been cut open, and my window was shattered. It was the point of entry for the intruders. My room was the only one facing the side of the building, secluded from prying eyes. It was at that moment that I realized I would never feel safe in my own room again. The police arrived, scattering white dust throughout our home in search of fingerprints. They took photographs, collected statements, and examined my broken window. Sadly, they couldn't apprehend the intruders but they did share a grim revelation with us. Our home invasion was not an isolated incident. During that month, four other houses in our neighborhood had been broken into, one of them belonging to a police officer, unrelated to our case. The intruders had studied their victims, learned their schedules, and even knew the layout of their homes, often entering through children's windows. All the affected families had children, like us, the realization that our privacy had been invaded by organized criminals left a lasting scar on our family. If we hadn't returned home earlier than expected, I might have come face to face with these intruders. I shudder at the thought and pray I never have to meet them again. I work hard during the evenings as a flight attendant, particularly on our overnight flights. I'm responsible for Delta flights from Buffalo, New York to various destinations across America. As you can imagine, 
The nights are usually hectic, with terminals flooded by passengers. My role involves ticket acceptance or denial, which often results in long lines of people rushing to catch their flights, and they're usually feeling quite agitated. It's a tough job, but it could always be worse. That fateful day started with an unusual delay. I overslept. I'm usually punctual, but something about the stress from late-night flights had taken its toll on my sleep schedule. I woke up a full hour later than I was supposed to, causing panic to set in. In my haste, I grabbed everything I needed and sprinted to my Acura, which was parked in the driveway. But as luck would have it, I had to turn around because I'd forgotten my purse, car keys, and lunch for work. Those ten minutes felt like an eternity, and by the time I got back to the car, I was already two hours late. I called my boss to apologize profusely, thanking her for covering for me. It was the first time in eight years that I'd been late, so thankfully, she understood the situation. I rushed out of the driveway and onto the main road, still trying to make it to work as quickly as possible. In retrospect, my reckless driving probably would have gotten me into trouble if a police officer had caught me. As I sped along, I passed a dark blue Ford that had been swerving in front of me for the past three miles. I blared my horn as I went past, and the driver gave me a polite flip of the bird. However, instead of letting me go, he began tailing me for the next five minutes. Admittedly, I knew I was in the wrong, but his erratic driving was endangering others on the road. I watched in growing concern as he nearly collided with a black car driven by an older woman. She looked petrified as his vehicle came dangerously close to hers, swerving just in time to avoid a collision. I tried to maintain my speed and distance from him, but he continued his erratic behavior. Eventually he lost control and veered off the road into a ditch after clipping a motorcycle. I pulled over to the side of the road to help and discovered that the motorcyclist was unconscious and bleeding profusely. My hands were trembling as I called an ambulance and gave my statement when the officers arrived. The ambulance rushed both drivers to the hospital, but the motorcyclist was declared dead upon arrival. The officers assured me they would be in touch if they needed any further details. Feeling numb, I eventually made my way to my desk at the airport, where I explained the morning's events to my boss. My hands were cold, and my fingers wouldn't cooperate properly, but I managed to put on a smile as I greeted the passengers boarding the flight. Everything seemed normal until one woman disembarked and answered a phone call. At first she appeared excited, but her demeanor quickly changed as she began to break down at the desk, screaming in a way I had never heard before. She was screaming about her son being dead, and her husband, who looked equally shocked, muttered to himself about how he knew the motorcycle would be the end of him. It was then that I realized that this was the same motorcyclist, the one who had been following me and got clipped and killed earlier. I stood there, virtually paralyzed, as the family rushed out of the terminal. On my way home, I couldn't shake the feeling that I saw the lone headlight of a motorcycle following closely behind me. The events of that day would haunt me for a long time, a reminder that life can take a terrifying turn in an instant. Several years ago, when I was just 14 years old, I experienced a chilling and unforgettable encounter during an evening winter walk on Cape Cod in Massachusetts. 
Our family had a summer house on Cape Cod, and we spent every other weekend there whenever we could escape the hustle and bustle of New York City. Cape Cod, a peninsula off the east coast of Massachusetts, was a lively and crowded place during the summertime, but during the winter season, it transformed into an empty and desolate landscape. Most of the houses in our area were summer residences, and during the winter, these houses stood eerily silent, devoid of their usual occupants. In stark contrast to New York, where city lights never allowed the night to truly darken, Cape Cod had only street lamps along its single main road in the town. The main road stretched from the town center to the beach, and aside from this road, all the other streets were cloaked in darkness at night. The Cape extended out into the Atlantic Ocean, forming Cape Cod Bay, allowing us to witness both breathtaking sunrises over the Atlantic and mesmerizing sunsets over the bay. This proximity to the ocean also meant that there were minimal artificial lights at night, making the stars shine brilliantly. On clear nights, the Milky Way spanned across the sky, creating a captivating celestial display. The events of this story unfolded during the period between Christmas and New Year's Day. After the Christmas celebrations were over, our family found ourselves with an abundance of leftover turkey and pumpkin pie. Cabin fever began to set in as we spent days indulging in Christmas feasts and surrounded by family. One evening, my older sister, who was seven years my senior and twenty years old at the time, proposed an idea to break the monotony. A walk to the harbor, approximately a twenty-minute journey from our cozy Cape Cod cottage. The harbor had a unique charm during the winter, as we could explore the quiet docks and wander among the boats. Although the thought of strolling through a deserted beach town on a cold winter night gave me a sense of unease, I also found the prospect of an adventure thrilling. As we ventured out into the darkness, crossing the street from our classic Cape Cod cottage, we were met with a vast field that gradually transitioned into a dense forest at the other end. The tall grass in the field added to the eerie ambience of the night, and a sense of foreboding crept over me. I couldn't help but entertain thoughts of potential psychopaths lurking in the tall grass, armed with axes, even though I knew it was just my imagination running wild. The setting was ripe for a horror movie, a moonless sky filled with sparkling stars, the Milky Way arching overhead, and a sense of isolation enveloping us. We continued our walk, reaching the main road and then turned onto a side street that led downhill toward the harbor. This side street ran along the backside of a long, yellow-painted motel with a pool, a lively hub during the summer months. However, on this December evening, the motel was closed for the season, shrouded in darkness, with several windows covered in plywood for protection. My sister couldn't help but remark how the motel, spanning an entire block yet partially boarded up, reminded her of the kind of horror movie where characters make all the wrong decisions and stumble into their worst nightmares. As we proceeded down the road, we realized that we hadn't encountered a single car, person, or sign of life since leaving our house. The absence of any signs of life began to weigh on our nerves. I was only 13 at the time, but I was determined to maintain a facade of toughness in front of my older sister. The woods alongside the road intensified our unease. The trees seemed to close in on us, offering countless hiding spots for someone or something. The houses beyond the woods were all dark, as winter vacationers rarely ventured to this area. 
It was then that I felt it, an inexplicable sensation tingling up the back of my neck, causing the hairs to stand on end. This peculiar feeling was something I experienced when I believed I was being watched, an eerie sixth sense, or perhaps just a heightened intuition. We found ourselves halfway into the wooded area, still descending toward the harbor. My composure was slipping, and I was on the verge of abandoning my tough act when my sister suddenly suggested, Let's go back, it's getting late, and it's pretty creepy here. I seized the opportunity and replied, Yeah, it's kind of eerie. I could feel my body trembling with a mix of fear and excitement as we turned around. My sister gripped my hand tightly, a rare display of affection from her. The moonless night and the dark, deserted streets only fueled our anxiety. As we retraced our steps, my sister suddenly let out a scream that sent shivers down my spine. I've got a knife, and I'm not afraid to use it. She maintained her brisk pace without missing a beat. We crossed a street, and when my sister cast a panicked glance behind us, I could hear a worried sound escape her lips. She ordered me, don't look back. My heart raced and a chilling sense of dread enveloped me. Apart from the eerie atmosphere and my sister's inexplicable behavior, I hadn't seen anything unusual. We continued our hasty retreat, making our way to the street behind the closed motel. My sister kept looking back, her apprehension intensifying. That's when she commanded, When I say run, you run, okay? Okay, I replied nervously. We were now approaching the end of the wooded area, and I was losing my composure entirely. My sister suddenly shouted, Run! We both broke into a sprint, our footsteps echoing loudly on the asphalt. I could hear more footsteps in the distance behind us. Cutting through a grassy area, we took a shortcut toward our street, running through our neighbor's front yards to reach the safety of our home. We finally made it inside, breathless and panicked, and locked the storm door behind us. The transition from the terror outside to the warmth and light of our house was surreal. Inside, I struggled to comprehend what had just occurred, my sister's bizarre behavior, and the lingering sense of unease. My sister seemed equally uncertain, questioning whether there had been a real threat, or if we had both allowed our imaginations to run wild. I asked my sister what she had seen, and she explained that there was a man standing at the edge of one of the driveways we had passed. She claimed that as we were heading back, he had crossed the street and appeared to be following us. She emphasized that he had been staring directly at us and had seemingly been closing the distance despite our fast pace. It made no sense for a man to be standing alone in that dark, wooded area at that time of night. To this day, I remain uncertain about the events of that night. I'm not sure how much of my sister's account was true, or if we had both allowed fear to play tricks on our minds. Regardless, one thing became clear. I had developed a strong preference for daytime walks to the harbor on Cape Cod. The frosty air bit at my cheeks as I trudged through the dense Wyoming forest. It was a typical January afternoon, the kind where the sun plays hide-and-seek behind the clouds casting long, wavering shadows across the snow-blanketed ground. I've always preferred hiking during these off-seasons. The trails are less trodden, the world quieter, more introspective. It's just you, the crisp air, and the occasional deer footprint. 
That day, though, the silence felt heavier, the isolation more pronounced. As I walked, my breath formed small puffs of vapor, disappearing as quickly as they appeared, like fleeting thoughts. I was wrapped up in my own, pondering over the little things, an unpaid bill, a forgotten errand, when I saw it. A camera, a sleek SLR perched precariously on a large boulder, as if it were deliberately placed to catch my attention. For a moment, I just stood there, squinting at it against the backdrop of the snow. Cameras are not what you expect to find in the middle of a Wyoming forest. I glanced around, half expecting someone to emerge from the trees, laughing at their prank. But there was nothing, just the sound of the wind whispering through the pines. Curiosity nudged me forward. The camera was an enigma, a sleek contrast to the rough, natural setting. As I neared it, I noticed a yellow, sticky note attached to the bottom, the handwriting almost playful. Finders keepers, it read, followed by a crudely drawn smiley face. My eyebrows furrowed. This had to be a joke, right? But who leaves an expensive camera out here as a prank? I picked it up, the metal cold but not as icy as I expected, given the temperature. It was like it had been recently handled, the warmth of human touch still lingering. I scanned the area again, nothing but trees and the occasional bird call. The camera felt right in my hands, familiar despite its strangeness. I've never been much of a photography buff, but I knew enough to recognize that this was a high-end model. I weighed it, considering my options. The right thing would be to leave it, or maybe take it to the local ranger station. But then, there was that note, and the camera's apparent value. It seemed wasteful to just leave it there. I decided to carry on with my hike, the camera slung around my neck. Maybe I'd bump into its owner further down the trail. But deep down, a small voice whispered that the camera was now mine. A gift from the forest, or perhaps a trap. I couldn't resist testing it. I aimed at the sky, where the clouds hung low and heavy, and snapped a photo. Then another of the trail winding ahead. Each click of the shutter was satisfying, yet each picture that appeared on the digital screen seemed off. The colors were muted, the images tinged with a grayish-yellow hue, like old photographs forgotten in a sunlit room. Shrugging off the unease, I continued my hike, the camera a constant curious presence at my side. Little did I know, this simple walk through the woods would soon spiral into a nightmare, the camera at its center. A nightmare that would make me question not just the forest around me, but the very fabric of reality itself. The following morning, the dull gray light of dawn seeped through the curtains of my small cabin, painting the room in a monochrome hue. I lay there for a while, the events of the previous day replaying in my mind. The camera sat on my desk, a silent, enigmatic sentinel. It was just an object, yet it felt like it had a presence, a weight beyond its physical form. After a strong cup of coffee, I decided to seek out Dave. He had a knack for electronics and a curiosity that matched mine. The drive to his place was quiet, the roads empty, and the sky a blanket of overcast gloom. I found him in his usual state, surrounded by a chaos of gadgets and tools in his garage. Hey, what brings you here this early? Dave asked, wiping his hands on a rag. I handed him the camera. Found this in the woods yesterday. Something's off about it. 
He turned it over in his hands, his brow furrowing. SLR, huh? But no brand. That's odd. He examined the pictures I had taken. These look... weird. Like there's a filter or something. I nodded, watching him closely. Try taking a picture. See if it's just the landscape shots that come out strange. He shrugged and pointed the camera at me. I posed, half-heartedly smiling, and he clicked the shutter. We both looked at the screen, expecting another oddly colored image. But this one was different. It wasn't just the colors. My face was twisted, my features grotesquely distorted. What the... Dave's voice trailed off as he looked from the screen to me and back again. This has to be some sort of trick camera, right? I took the camera back, a shiver running down my spine. I'm not so sure. We spent the next hour trying to figure it out, checking for filters, hidden settings, anything that could explain the images. But the camera was like a puzzle without a solution. I know someone who might help, I said finally, thinking of Jim. He used to work in a camera shop in town, knew everything there was to know about photography, but Jim had had a rough couple of years. Last I heard, he was at St. Daniel's Mental Health Facility. Dave raised an eyebrow. You think he can help? Can't hurt to ask. St. Daniel's was a stark, imposing building on the outskirts of town. I signed in at the front desk, claiming to be Jim's cousin. They led me to a common area where Jim sat alone, staring out a window. Jim? I approached cautiously. He turned slowly, his eyes vacant at first, then sharpening as they focused on me. Do I know you? I hesitated, then decided to be direct. I found a camera, Jim. An SLR. The pictures. They're not right. His expression changed then. A flicker of recognition, then fear. The camera. You shouldn't have taken it. You need to get rid of it. Why? What's wrong with it? I pressed. He looked around nervously, then leaned in close. It's not just a camera. It sees things. Things it shouldn't. Things from elsewhere. It's dangerous. Before I could ask more, a nurse approached, her expression stern. Time's up, she said, guiding me away. Jim's words echoed in my mind as I left the facility, the sense of unease growing. What had I stumbled upon? There's something about being told you're holding a dangerous object that makes you want to understand it more, not less. Jim's words had lodged themselves in my mind like a splinter. I needed answers, and the only place I could think of to start was back at the beginning. The trail where I'd found the camera. The drive to the forest was tense, my thoughts a tangle of anxiety and curiosity. I parked at the trailhead, the camera resting on the passenger seat its presence now feeling more ominous than intriguing. As I walked the familiar path, the air felt heavier, the silence more oppressive. Reaching the spot where I'd found the camera, I stopped. The forest seemed different, altered in subtle, unsettling ways. The trees were gnarled, their branches twisted into grotesque shapes, mirroring the distorted images I'd captured with the camera. A cold shiver ran down my spine as I realized... The changes weren't just in the trees. The very landscape around me seemed off. The colors muted. The air thick with an unnameable dread. It was as if the camera had not just captured the forest, but changed it, infecting it with its otherworldly malevolence. I lifted the camera, my hand trembling slightly, 
and took a photo of the warped scenery. The image on the screen was as twisted as the reality before me. That's when I heard a voice, chillingly familiar. Have you figured it out yet? I spun around. Standing there in the flesh was Dave, but not the Dave I knew. His features were distorted, his smile a grotesque caricature. Beside him was Jim, his eyes wild, his face a mask of madness. You shouldn't have brought it back here, Jim hissed. Who are you? I stammered, backing away. What do you want? We're not who you think, the distorted Dave said, his voice a guttural echo. We're from another place, your camera. It opened a door. My mind raced, trying to comprehend what they were saying. Another place, a door, the camera. Jim continued, his voice trembling. It's a gateway. We use it to reach your world, to transform it. I looked from one to the other, horror gripping me. They weren't human, not anymore. They were something else, something otherworldly, corrupted by the camera's influence. I thought of running, but something held me in place. Fear, maybe, or the desperate need to understand. How do I stop it? I asked, my voice barely a whisper. You can't, the entity that used to be Dave said. It's too late. The changes have begun. They moved closer, and I could see now the true extent of their transformation. Their skin was mottled, their eyes hollow. They were no longer of this world, but something far more sinister. As they approached, I did the only thing I could think of. I raised the camera and took their picture. The flash seemed to startle them, giving me just enough time to turn and run. I didn't stop until I reached my truck, my breath ragged, my heart pounding. I threw the camera onto the seat and drove away, leaving the forest and its twisted inhabitants behind. But I knew it wasn't over. The camera had unleashed something terrible, and I had unwittingly become part of it. I had to find a way to close the gateway, to undo what I had done. But how? How do you fight something that can twist reality itself? There are moments in life when reality shifts, and what you thought you knew crumbles away. Driving away from that forest, the camera beside me, I felt as though I was caught in a current, powerless against the pull of something vast and unknowable. I didn't head home. Instead, I drove aimlessly, my mind a whirlpool of fear and confusion. The words of the twisted versions of Dave and Jim echoed in my ears. A gateway, another place transformations. I thought of the distorted landscape, the unnatural silence that hung over the forest. Whatever I had unleashed, it was beyond my understanding, beyond my control. It was dusk when they found me. I was parked on a lonely stretch of road, staring at the camera, when a fleet of black SUVs surrounded me. Men and women in tactical gear poured out, their movements precise, their expressions grim. One of them, a tall man with a scar running down his cheek, approached me. Are you the one who found the camera? He asked, his voice devoid of warmth. I nodded, unable to find my voice. We need to take it, he said, reaching for the camera. Who are you? I finally managed to croak. The organization, he replied simply, as if that explained everything. This camera is a threat. It's a doorway to something dangerous. I watched, numb, as they took the camera and began scanning the area with strange devices. The man with the scar, he never gave me his name, stayed with me. What's going to happen now? I asked. We contain the situation, 
he said. We've dealt with otherworldly threats before. This is just another day for us. But the people in the forest... He shook his head. They were already lost. Once the other side takes hold, there's no coming back. I thought of Dave and Jim, of the horror that had replaced their humanity. A sense of guilt washed over me. I should have left the camera where I found it. Your friend Dave, the man said suddenly, as if reading my thoughts. He's gone. Tried to contact you, to warn you. They didn't like that. I felt a sharp pain in my chest. Dave had tried to reach out, and I hadn't understood the danger. What now? I asked, feeling defeated. You sign a non-disclosure agreement. We compensate you for your silence. It was surreal, sitting there, signing a document that stated I would never speak of this, receiving a check that felt like blood money. As I drove home, the check in my pocket, the weight of what had happened pressing down on me, I realized that my world had changed. I had glimpsed something beyond the veil of reality, something terrifying and incomprehensible. I tried to convince myself that it was over, that the organization would handle it. But as I lay in bed that night, staring at the ceiling, I knew the truth. It wasn't over, it was just beginning. The days following the incident with the camera and the organization passed in a blur. I found myself going through the motions of everyday life, but nothing felt the same. The world around me seemed less real, like I was living in a shadow of what used to be. The check for $10,000 sat untouched on my kitchen table, a stark reminder of the silence I had agreed to. I couldn't shake the images of the twisted forest, or the haunting transformations of Dave and Jim. They infiltrated my dreams, turning them into restless, feverish nightmares. During the day, I found myself staring into the distance, lost in thought. I couldn't escape the feeling that I had glimpsed something fundamental and terrifying about the nature of our world. The worst part was the isolation. I couldn't talk about what had happened, couldn't share the burden of what I knew. The non-disclosure agreement was a chain around my neck, a constant weight. I pondered over the idea of breaking it, of telling someone, anyone, about the otherworldly horror I had witnessed. But fear kept me silent. Fear of the organization. Fear of not being believed. Fear of the camera itself. Even though it was no longer in my possession. I tried to distract myself with work, with hikes in the mountains, but it was useless. The forests I once loved now felt oppressive, the trees watching me with unseen eyes. I couldn't shake the sensation that something was lurking just out of sight waiting. It wasn't just the fear and the nightmares that haunted me. It was the questions, the endless, unanswerable questions. What was the camera, really? Where had it come from? What was the nature of the other place, the one that had claimed Dave and Jim? And the biggest question of all, were there more objects like the camera out there? One evening, I sat on my porch, watching the sun set over the mountains. The sky was ablaze with colors, a beautiful, serene end to the day. But even that couldn't lift the heaviness in my heart. I thought about Dave, about his curiosity and his untimely end. I wondered what he would have done if our roles were reversed. Would he have delved deeper into the mystery, or would he have backed away, scared of what he might uncover? I realized then that what I missed most was the simplicity of not knowing. 
There was a time when I would have looked at the sunset and seen only its beauty, not a reminder of other, darker realities. There was a time when the forest was just a place of peace and solitude, not a gateway to horror. As the sky darkened and the first stars appeared, I made a decision. I would try to move on, to find some semblance of normalcy. But I would also stay alert, watchful. If there were other gateways, other threats, I needed to be prepared. The camera had changed everything. It had shown me a glimpse of the unknown, and that knowledge could not be unlearned. I was a different person now, one who had stared into the abyss and seen it stare back. And so I watched the night fall, feeling a mix of resignation and resolve. The world was a bigger, stranger place than I had ever imagined, and I was now a part of that strangeness, for better or for worse. It's funny how some memories stick with you, clear as day, even when years have passed. For me, those memories are often about the times I spent with my best friend Jay, back when we were teenagers. We would escape the boredom of our small town by heading out to Forest Glen National Park, a sprawling green haven only 15 miles from where we lived. It was our little adventure land, with its camping sites, fishing spots, and most importantly, countless winding trails. I remember those days like they were yesterday. Jay and I didn't have much going on in our lives, so Forest Glen became our go-to place. We'd pack a few snacks, grab our water bottles, and just hike. Sometimes we'd challenge ourselves to tackle two or even three trails in a single day, depending on how energetic we felt. Those trails, with their twists and turns, hidden nooks, and unexpected vistas, never got old. They were like our secret world, a place where we could talk about everything and nothing, away from the prying eyes of our small-town life. As time passed, Jay and I grew up, and life, as it tends to do, got in the way. College, jobs, and all the other grown-up stuff filled our days, and our visits to Forest Glen became less and less frequent. But those trails and the memories we made there never really left me. Lately, I'd found myself thinking about those days more often, Maybe it was nostalgia, or maybe just a desire to reconnect with a simpler time. Whatever it was, it made me pick up the phone and call Jay out of the blue. Hey Jay, you remember Forrest Glenn? I asked, feeling a bit silly. But to my surprise, his response was immediate and enthusiastic. Of course. Man, we had some good times there. Why do you ask? I explained how I'd been reminiscing and floated the idea of going back for a hike just like old times. I half expected him to laugh it off, but instead he was all in. He even sounded excited about it, saying he'd been thinking of doing the same, but never got around to it. So we made plans to meet up that Saturday morning at one of his favorite trails, the one that wound its way up to the old lookout point. Saturday morning arrived bright and clear. I got up while it was still dark, feeling a mix of excitement and nerves. It had been so long since I'd done anything like this. I grabbed my backpack, which now felt oddly unfamiliar, and drove out to Forest Glen. The sun was just starting to paint the sky with shades of orange and pink when I reached the park. Parking my car near the trailhead, I noticed the absence of Jay's car. There was more than one entrance to the park, so I figured he might have parked somewhere else. I checked my phone to call him, but I barely had any signal. Typical. 
Shaking my head, I locked the car and decided to start walking. Maybe he was already on the trail, or maybe he was just running late. Standing at the trail entrance, I began some stretches, my eyes occasionally darting to the path, hoping to catch a glimpse of Jay. I remembered how he always used to be the first one at our meeting spots, usually with some joke or prank ready to lighten the mood. But today, it seemed I was the early bird. After about ten minutes, I started to get impatient. We had agreed to meet at 6.30 in the morning, and Jay was never one to break a plan. Maybe I should go back and check my phone again, I thought. But then, on a whim, I decided to walk a little way into the trail, just to see if I could spot him. The trail was just as I remembered it, a clear path at the beginning, giving way to a more rugged natural trail, flanked by thick brush and towering trees. It felt good to be back, the air fresh and crisp, filled with the sounds of nature waking up. But something felt different. The trail seemed less traveled, more overgrown than I remembered. And it was quiet, too quiet. The usual chatter of birds and rustle of leaves was there, but it was like the volume had been turned down. I walked briskly, my eyes scanning the path ahead and the dense foliage around me. The familiar yet strange trail brought back a flood of memories. It was on these very paths that Jay and I had shared our teenage dreams and fears. It felt surreal to be here again, alone this time, with only the echoes of the past for company. As I reached a small stream that cut across the trail, I paused. The path continued on the other side, splitting off in two directions. I had never been good at remembering which way led where. That was always Jay's thing. He had an uncanny sense of direction, always knew exactly where we were and how to get back. I decided this was as far as I'd go on my own. I didn't want to risk getting lost, and I wanted to be at the trailhead when Jay arrived. I knelt down to tie my shoelace, which had come loose. As I stood up, I caught my breath. There, right in front of me, was Jay. He was grinning like he used to when we were kids, like he had just pulled off the best prank. Jay, I exclaimed, a mix of relief and annoyance in my voice. You scared me. He laughed, that familiar infectious laugh that always made it impossible to stay mad at him. Sorry, couldn't help myself he said, still chuckling. I was a bit farther up the trail and turned back when I didn't see you. Thought I'd surprise you. I shook my head, smiling despite myself. Well, you definitely did that. I didn't even hear you coming. He just grinned, that wide, toothy grin that was so quintessentially Jay. We stood there for a moment, just looking at each other. It felt like no time had passed at all. Yet here we were, years older, standing on the trail that had seen so much of our youth. Shall we? I asked, gesturing towards the trail. Let's do it, Jay replied, his smile still in place. He led the way, and I followed, feeling a sense of rightness, of things falling back into place. We were back on the trails of Forest Glen, just like old times. But as we walked, a whisper of something not quite right. I pushed it aside, focusing instead on the trail ahead, and the friend beside me. As I stepped onto the trail, I couldn't help but feel a twinge of disappointment at Jay's absence. We had agreed to meet here, at this very spot, but he was nowhere to be seen. I had this weird gut feeling, the kind you get when something's not quite right, 
but I pushed it aside, convincing myself that Jay was probably just running late. The trail was just as beautiful as I remembered, but somehow, it felt different. It was overgrown, wilder than before. Nature had reclaimed what we once knew so well. I tried to shrug off the eerie silence that seemed to envelop the woods. I told myself it was just the early hour, that the forest was still waking up. I ventured further in, my footsteps crunching on the forest floor. The narrow path, framed by tall trees and thick underbrush, brought back a flood of memories. Jay and I used to race down these trails, laughing and shouting, our voices echoing through the trees. Now the only sound was the soft rustling of leaves in the gentle morning breeze. After a few minutes of walking, I stopped near a small stream that crossed the path. I remembered how Jay and I would jump over these streams, competing to see who could do it without getting wet. I smiled at the memory, but it was a bittersweet smile. I missed those carefree days. As I stood there lost in thought, I realized just how quiet it was. It was more than just the absence of human noise. It was like the forest itself was holding its breath. The usual symphony of bird calls and insect chirps was strangely muted. It was peaceful, yet unsettling. I decided to head back to the trail entrance, thinking maybe Jay had arrived by then. I didn't want to venture too far without him, especially since I wasn't as familiar with these trails as he was. As I turned around, I stooped to retie my shoelace, and that's when I got the shock of my life. Jay was suddenly there, standing right in front of me, grinning. I let out a gasp, my heart pounding in my chest. Jay, you scared me half to death, I exclaimed. He just laughed, that familiar, hearty laugh that always made everything seem okay. Sorry, couldn't resist. I saw you from up the trail and decided to sneak up on you, he said still chuckling. I couldn't help but smile, despite the adrenaline still coursing through my veins. Well, you definitely succeeded in scaring me, I admitted. As we started walking together, I felt a sense of relief wash over me. Everything was back to normal, just two friends hiking their favorite trail. Jay led the way, his steps confident and sure. I followed, happy to be back in this familiar place with my old friend. But as we walked, I couldn't shake off the feeling that something was still off. The silence of the forest was unnerving, and I couldn't remember the trail being this overgrown. I tried to push those thoughts away, focusing instead on the sound of our footsteps and Jay's occasional comments about the trail. Remember how we used to race to the big oak tree? He asked, pointing to a spot up ahead. Yeah, I do, I replied, smiling at the memory. You always won, though. Jay laughed. That's because I always cheated and started running before you were ready. We continued walking, the familiarity of our banter comforting. But deep down, I knew something was different. The forest didn't feel like the one I remembered. It felt like a stranger, watching us with silent, unseen eyes. As Jay and I jogged down the familiar yet strangely foreign trail, a flood of memories from our teenage years rushed back to me. We laughed and shared stories, reminiscing about the good old days. It felt great to be back here with Jay, even though the trail seemed more mysterious and overgrown than I remembered. The deeper we went into the forest, the more I noticed how different things seemed. The path was narrower, the trees closer together, 
and the silence of the woods was almost overwhelming. It was as if the forest had changed, or maybe it was us who had changed. Jay kept up a steady pace, leading the way with confidence. I followed, trying to shake off the growing sense of unease. We talked about everything from our first camping trip here to the time we got lost and ended up hiking until sunset. Remember when you tripped over that route and scraped your knee? Jay suddenly asked, a teasing tone in his voice. I chuckled, rubbing my knee reflexively. How could I forget? You wouldn't stop making fun of me for weeks. Jay laughed, but something about his laughter sounded different this time. It didn't have the warmth it used to. I pushed the thought aside, attributing it to my overactive imagination. We continued jogging, the trail becoming more rugged with each step. The forest around us felt denser, almost suffocating in its silence. I could barely hear any wildlife, which was odd for Forest Glen. It was as if the animals themselves were avoiding this part of the woods. What's up with this trail, Jay? I asked, panting slightly from the effort. It seems so... different. Jay didn't respond immediately. He just kept jogging, that strange smile still on his face. It's just nature taking back what's hers, he finally said, his voice lacking its usual cheerfulness. We reached the fork in the trail, and Jay paused, looking at both paths before deciding on the right one. I followed, my unease growing with every step. The trees seemed to close in around us, their branches creating a canopy that blocked out most of the sunlight. This doesn't seem right, I muttered, more to myself than to Jay. I don't remember the trail being this overgrown. Jay didn't reply. He just kept moving forward, his pace never wavering. I tried to keep up, but my legs were starting to burn from the effort. Suddenly, a memory hit me like a bolt of lightning. It was a day when I had fallen and scraped my knees really bad. Jay wasn't there that day. He was homesick. My heart started to race as I realized something was terribly wrong. Jay, wait, I called out, stopping in my tracks. He turned around, his expression unreadable. What's wrong? he asked his voice barely more than a whisper. I swallowed hard, my mouth suddenly dry. You weren't there the day I scraped my knees. You were sick. For a moment, Jay just stared at me, his eyes wide. Then slowly, his expression changed. The smile disappeared, replaced by something cold and unreadable. I need to go back, I stammered, taking a step backward. Something was very wrong and every instinct in my body was screaming at me to get out of these woods. Jay just stood there, watching me with that strange, cold look. I turned and started running back the way we came, my heart pounding in my chest. I didn't look back, not even once. All I knew was that I had to get away from whatever was pretending to be my friend. My breath was ragged, my heart pounding in my chest as I ran through the overgrown trail. The realization that the person with me wasn't Jay sending waves of panic through my body. Every rustle in the bushes, every snap of a twig under my feet, heightened my fear. I couldn't believe it. How could I not have realized sooner? The memories we shared, the laughter, it all seemed so real. But the chilling truth was now clawing at my mind. That thing was not my friend. I could barely see through the tears that blurred my vision, but I kept running. 
The once familiar trail now felt like a labyrinth, with branches reaching out like hands trying to grab me. My mind raced with questions. Who or what was that impersonating Jay, and why? The forest, once a sanctuary of happy memories, now felt like a trap closing in on me. I stumbled over a root, catching myself before I fell. Pain shot up my leg, but I pushed it aside. I had to get out of these woods. I had to get away from whatever was masquerading as Jay. The thought of that thing, with Jay's face and voice, made my skin crawl. Finally, I saw the clearing where my car was parked. I had never been so relieved to see that old, beat-up vehicle. I fumbled with my keys, my hands shaking uncontrollably. Glancing over my shoulder, I half expected to see that thing following me. But there was nothing. Just the quiet, ominous forest. I threw myself into the car, locking the doors the second I was inside. I didn't waste a moment, starting the engine and speeding away from Forest Glen as fast as I could. My mind was a whirlwind of fear and confusion. What had just happened? Was I losing my mind? The drive home felt endless. Every shadow, every movement outside the car made me jump. I kept checking the rearview mirror, expecting to see that thing chasing after me, but there was nothing just the empty road and the growing distance from the forest. When I finally got home, I was a mess. My hands were still shaking, and my heart was still racing. I grabbed my phone from the glove compartment. I had forgotten to take it with me in the rush to escape the forest. That's when I saw it. A text from Jay, the real Jay. His message sent a chill down my spine. He explained that he couldn't make it to Forest Glen because the park was closed. There had been several accidents, people found drowned. My heart sank. If Jay hadn't been in the forest, then who or what was with me? I barely had time to process this when I heard a knock at my door. A cold dread settled in my stomach. I peered through the peephole and felt my blood turn to ice. There, on my doorstep, was Jay, or at least something that looked like him, smiling that same unsettling smile. I didn't open the door, Instead, I called the real Jay, my hands trembling as I dialed his number. His voice, warm and familiar, was a stark contrast to the cold fear I felt. He was at the store, nowhere near my house. I hung up and immediately dialed 911, reporting an intruder at my door. By the time the police arrived, the imposter was gone. I didn't know how to explain it to the officers, so I just said someone was trying to break in. They promised to patrol the area, but I knew they didn't understand the true nature of the threat. That night, and every night since, I've been haunted by the presence of that thing. It knocks on my door, calling out in a voice that's a twisted version of Jay's, begging to be let in. I've called the police multiple times, but they find nothing. They've stopped taking me seriously. Now I sit here, alone and terrified, clutching a knife for protection. The knocks continue each one sending a shiver down my spine. I don't know what that creature wants, but I know I can't let it in. The memory of the forest, of the thing wearing my friend's face, haunts my every waking moment. I'm trapped in my own home, a prisoner of my fear, and I don't know how much longer I can hold out. Night after night, I sit in my living room, the lights dimmed, a heavy sense of dread hanging over me. The creature, whatever it is, keeps coming back. 
its knocks at the door like a countdown to my sanity. I clutch the kitchen knife tightly, the cold metal offering a small sense of security, though I know it's not enough to protect me from whatever is out there. The police have stopped responding to my calls. They think I'm just another paranoid guy, spooked by his own shadow. But I know what I saw, what I heard. That thing, wearing Jay's face, isn't human. It's something else, something sinister. My mind races with questions. What is this creature? Why is it tormenting me? What does it want? But the answers are as elusive as the shadow that lurks outside my door. I've tried researching, looking for anything that might explain what's happening. But I've found nothing. It's like I'm facing a ghost, a phantom that exists only to haunt me. Every knock, every call of my name in that garbled, twisted version of Jay's voice sends shivers down my spine. I've stopped sleeping. I can't. Every time I close my eyes, I see that thing's face, hear its voice. It's driving me to the edge. Tonight, as I sit here, the bottle of brandy on the table almost empty, the knocks come again. My heart pounds in my chest, a frantic drumbeat echoing my fear. The voice follows, a wail that sounds less and less like Jay with each passing night. Let me in, it moans. I need more friends. The words send a chill through me. More friends? What does that mean? Is it lonely? Is it looking for companionship in its twisted, horrifying way? Or is it something more sinister? I've barricaded the door, but I know it's a futile effort. If this thing is what I think it is, no lock, no barrier can keep it out. But still, I try. I have to do something, anything, to feel like I have some control over the situation. The creature's visits are becoming more frequent, more desperate. I can hear it moving around the house, tapping on the windows, testing every possible entry. I'm trapped, a prisoner in my own home, and the walls feel like they're closing in on me. I don't know how much more of this I can take. The isolation, the fear, the constant vigilance. It's wearing me down, breaking me bit by bit. I've thought about leaving, about running away, but where would I go? And what if it follows me? What if it's not just tied to this house, but to me? As the night wears on, the knocks and calls continue, a relentless assault on my senses. I know I can't keep this up forever. Sooner or later, I'll have to face whatever is out there. But I'm not ready. Not yet. For now, all I can do is wait, watch, and hope that the dawn will bring some respite, some answer to this nightmare. But deep down, I know the truth. There is no escape from the unseen menace that has chosen me as its target. All I can do is wait and pray that when the time comes, I'll have the strength to face it 